Well, we are going to be jumping back in to our 72-week series. Yes, I know, it has been way too long, and um, we are in week 24, so think about it. We're about a quarter of the way through. Hold on, we got a little bit more to go. Uh, for those of you who kind of have, have missed the first 23 weeks, um, it's online. I'm not going to try to recap all this because it'd be ridiculous. Um, but basically, what we have been trying to do is just say, um, when Missio Day started, we looked, at, we walked through the book of Ephesians, and we found this repeating phrase of being in Christ, being in Christ, being found in Him, that our identity is found in Christ before all else. Before the magazine articles, the pictures, the layout, what the media says about us, our identity is found in Christ. And so as I was working through this, I'm going, so what does it mean to be found in Christ? Who is this Christ and what does this mean? And so what we are going to, we've been doing is we've been walking through the gospel of Mark and saying, who is this Jesus Christ that we are supposed to be found in? And uh, since I, you know, I, I announced that we're going through these 72 weeks, I got, um, excuse the French, a lot of crap from people of going, seriously, Paul, 72 weeks? You know, Peace Community Church, they went through it in about six or seven weeks, the whole book of Mark. And you're going through in 72 weeks, you know, put it into high gear. But a couple weeks ago, um, I, I, I got a little bit of encouragement through the email. Um, I subscribe to uh, Desiring God. It's the ministry of John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, he sent out an email. And um, he announced that he was going to be beginning a new extended series through uh, the Gospel of John. Now, uh, when John Bloom, the executive director of Desiring God, heard this, uh, he wrote John Piper an email. And he was both thrilled and he was curious. And this is what he said. I'm thrilled that you will be preaching through the Gospel of John. It's my favorite Gospel. Over the last two years, 2006 and 2007, I memorized it. Okay, right there, I was like, uh, I memorized it, and it was so rich. To have you preach through it will be a great joy. Hebrews was 303 verses. You preach 52 sermons. Romans was 433 verses. You preached 224 messages. John has 879 verses. Dot, dot, dot. He left the sentence dangling, and I'm sure the curiosity is, how long will this series on the Gospel of John last? Roman took, Romans, the book of Romans for John Piper took eight years. Quit your crying. <laughs> John is twice as long. And so he went, uh, John Bloom went on to say, or John Piper went on to say, I am 62 as we begin. Someone may ask, why start a series of messages on the fourth longest book in the New Testament? Do you want to die in this book? And John Piper said, I cannot think of a better place to die. Now, I am not announcing that I am critically ill or planning on dying or that I feel like, man, I'm coming on 40. You know, that's almost the death point. Um, sorry, back there. 
Um, but here's what I do say. Here's what I, where I am at. I am hungry for Christ. I'm hungry for Jesus. And John Owen, one of the great Puritan writers, um, when he was getting to, towards the end of his life, he was writing a book called The Meditations on the Glory of Christ. And he, wa- he wanted to be focused on the main reality of the whole universe in his last years. And in this book, John Owen said this. Ready? Ready, Ed? The revelation of Christ deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. What better preparation can there be for our future enjoyment of the glory of Christ than in a constant previous contemplation of the glory in the revelation that is made in the gospel? What better preparation for future enjoyment of Christ in heaven than for right now to sit in the gospel and just enjoy and relish Christ? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep on plowing forward. I had an opportunity to just break it off and just say, let's start a new series. No, we're going to jump into Mark 6 again. So if you've got a Bible, jump to Mark 6. And I'm going to do a little bit of uh, backtracking so that you can uh, kind of catch up. Because if you don't understand what has previously happened, um, you won't get what's really happening in this section. So Mark 6, if you don't have a Bible, you know, kind of flag somebody down. I encourage you, open it up. Um, our provided Bibles are page 698. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark 6. Starting at verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Hmm. You hear that? They took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. So what we're seeing here is right in Jesus' hometown, with the people that knew him best, his mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters, Uncle Joe who's down the street, the neighbor who's right over here, the people that knew him best, There was this insurgence of unbelief, just basically because they were so familiar with Jesus. Isn't this, isn't this Mary's kid? Come on. We saw him playing, uh, Jewish kickball outside. You know, we saw him, we know he, uh, what he does. You know, this is, this is Jesus. And they were so familiar with him that they're going, come on. How is this possible that he's doing these things? And I believe that 
unbelief in Jesus Christ even robs the church of true power. We can add new programs until we have not enough hours in the day or enough bulletin inserts. Have you ever been to one of those churches where like, you get like this folder and it's like bulletin, 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 insert, 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 and you're going, and they're all multicolored. And you're going, I'm like on overload. You know, but there's not enough power, energy in just programs and bulletin announcements. And you know what? Eric Bailey did this morning. Hey, that's great stuff. But there's no power really in that. If we do not have a believing expectancy in Christ and His power, nothing will happen. There's no life in that. If we are just doing church because it's familiar or the thing to do, there is no power in that. Heck, go sign up at the VFW or some Moose Lodge or just join a social club then. Because if you're coming here just because it's the familiar right thing, after a while, there's death there. There's pure death. Because there, there seems to be this, this natural response out of familiarity to have contempt. Have contempt. And I would even argue a certain amount of comfortableness. As, as soon as you start doing things repetitively, or going to things repetitively, there, there becomes this kind of laissez-faire, well, whatever happens will happen. Oh, well, this is just what we do, you know. And there's no longer this awe, there's no longer this, wow, this wonder. And husbands, I'm going to speak to you right now. Listen, husbands, would you say that if you have been married for 10 years, that doesn't include me yet, or five, let's go down five. Most of us are within that one to five, I think. Would you say that you have the same awe for your wife and wonder for your wife today that you do that you did on your wedding day? Would you say that there's this, oh my gosh, this woman. That's not just over a really good meal or just sex, you know. It's like every moment you go, God is so good. Or would you say that over the years, as day every day goes by, the more familiar you become, the less wonder, the less awe. I think that's exactly what happens. And it doesn't have to be in a marriage relationship. Even in friendships, that first time that you met that person, that, that new friend, that new connection, all of a sudden there's like this, yeah, oh my gosh, we need to hang out with them. That was cool. That was a lot of fun. We did this. We did that. That was great. And after a while, you keep doing it. It's like, all right, we're going to Dunkin' Donuts again. You just lose it. And I think the same thing, that it's even natural, even in our, our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you call yourself a Christ follower, we see that even in our, our, our own walk. There's just this natural propensity that we see Fade, contempt, comfortableness, a lack of awe. The awe and wonder and the holy fear of God just seems to fade. 
D.A. Carson, New Testament theologian. If you haven't heard of him, he's a household name in a lot of circles. Maybe not your household, but my wife goes, oh, D.A. Carson. But he said this. People do not drift towards holiness. True? People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves in thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. The original wonder is gone and we become more and more and more and more familiar with the Jesus that we find on the pages of the Bible, forgetting all too quickly that this Jesus that we seem to pull out of a book, out of the pages, has paid the greatest price for us, for our salvation. And as the Colossians says, He is in us. He dwells deeply within us. So that brings us to Mark 7, which is our, our focus. Or sorry, Mark 6 Verse 7, which is going to be our focus. So Jesus has been rejected by his family, his neighbors, those who are comfortable with him. And we see according to verse 6, that um, towards the end of verse 6, that he went out among the villages teaching. So he, he kind of moved out of his, his neighborhood and went out to the surrounding villages. So let's read Mark uh, 6, 7 through 13. And just so you know, some of you are getting thrown off because it's like, That's not in my Bible. I'm reading from the ESV. So stick with me. Here we go. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus has launched his public ministry to Israel and he's called them to repentance. And now, according to the other Gospels, he's sending the disciples out into the local countryside to their unbelieving countrymen to preach repentance, to cast out demons, and to participate in healing. Jesus was very intentional about his instructions about how they are to be going out and what they are to be doing. Now, 
for me, you know, as kind of a ministry, that's kind of the personality that I have, it's like I take the book and it's like, okay, Jesus did this. So how do we do this at Missio Day? And we start going immediately into practice. It's like, okay, so Jesus sent them out two by two. Okay, Burks, you're going to go out. Uh, Liz and Lord, you're going to go out. You're going to go out with Eric. You two are going to go out by yourself. I know you can't drive, okay, boys? But you two, yeah, that, you guys, the Anderson boys, you two are going to go out, and then Mom and Dad are going to go out separately. So you've got to figure it out on your own. You know, so you, two by two, okay, this is what we're going to do. And it's like, okay, everybody, Tevas, okay? Maybe flip-flops. But we're not wearing shoes on this journey, you know. So we get so caught up in the details and we make it into a program of what we've got to do that we miss the message. That we miss what's re- what Jesus is saying. Listen, here's what you need to hear in my words. Don't get so caught up in the do this, do this, do this, do this. Because all of a sudden you're on this end of legalism or it's like practice and you miss the message. You miss the message. So one of the first things that we need to do as a group is we need to grasp that Jesus is sending out common people with an uncommon message. He is sending out regular people. And just so you know, that's you. Regular people. He had fishermen. He had tax collectors. He had a zealot, like a a right-wing conservative Republican Nazi. A whack job. And he's like, some of you are going, no, that's called a Calvinist. (laughs) You know, but sorry, I'm a Calvinist, so I apologize to myself. But, you know, so it's like... There's just all these just regular people, just regular folks. And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to send you out. One, I'm going to send you out two by two. Because in in the Old Testament, it took two people to make a valid statement, to be a witness, a true witness. It required two people. And so he says, listen, I'm going to send you out two by two. And it's also going to provide you a tremendous amount of needed support. You guys are going to go out. And there was this kind of this saying, the commissioning was basically, Jesus was saying, you are my extension. Here is what I have been teaching you. You've been sitting at my feet. We've been walking around. You've been seeing miracles. You are my, you are an extension of me. And there was a saying in his time, the sent one is as the man who commissioned him. So the sent one is as the one who commissioned him. So as we go out, you know, we, we don't just gather here and say, hey, good job, let's sing some praises, yay, guitar, you know, I feel warm and fuzzy, and let's just go. It's this, the purpose of our gathering is, you are, as you hear the words of Christ, you are the sent ones. You are the ones there to go out as a family, as the people of God, going out together and saying, listen, as the sent ones, we are as the one who has commissioned us. We go with the words of Christ. We go with the peace of Christ. We go together as the sent ones. We are His witnesses as we go out together. So I'm, I'm not advocating that we all dress the same 
and ride a bicycle down, hand out our little tracks. But in wherever we go, we're called to be as the one who has sent us. We're called to go as Christ, to be his representation in his world. And in verses 8 through 11, he, he, he lays it really out there. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you what you can and cannot bring. He, he just really lays it out. Now, I don't know what your family vacations are like. Sorry, Laura. But our family vacations, let's say that we're going to Wisconsin. I don't know why we'd go there. Maybe it's because my wife's been there as a child. Um, but we are going to go on these family vacations. And when we start the whole packing process, it's a week process. The underwear starts sitting on the bed in piles. The clothes start sitting out in piles. We've got to do more laundry that week because we've got to make sure all the clothes is clean so that you pick out the proper stuff. You know, so we just, we, and we've got to do it because we've got a small army. We've got a small army. And so it's quite, you know, all of a sudden the day of that, that morning that we're leaving, we're, we're pulling like 12 caravans of stuff down. 15? 20? No, we do like... You do? <laughs> I'm leaving the Andersons out of my uh, notes here on out. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's this real sense of, okay, what do we got to have? We got to have all this stuff. Well, what if somebody gets sick? All right, let's take all the medicine. What, is, what about this? We got to have enough diapers. Enough diapers for two weeks, even if we're going for one week. We got to have enough. We got to have enough. And Jesus says, listen, hold on. When you go, you are going to take minimal provisions. When you go, you are, you're going to take minimal provisions. And here's, here's some of the reasons why. Back in those days, when you entered into the court or to the, the temple court area, you were expected to leave your shoes, your belt, your extra stuff at the door as you entered into the sacred place. And maybe Jesus was saying, listen, the homes that you enter into, these are going to be just as sacred as the temple. These homes, these, these holy places, they're special, they're set aside. But he can also be saying, listen, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me more than you trust your stuff. I want you to listen... I want you to rely on me more than you rely on anybody else. Because the minimum provisions was meant to call out the maximum faith. The minimum provisions is meant to call out the maximum faith. That doesn't mean that we're all called to a destitute life of living on the streets. But sometimes I think that we are people who are constantly in danger of having way too much. Way too much. We've got to have this. 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 And we start trusting in these created things instead of the Creator. Man, we've we got to have... Even, even in church planting, way back in the day uh, when we started this, there's this like, okay, how much money do we need to have to make this happen? The more money that you have and the more things that you send out, the more postcards you 
handouts, the more the gospel will go out. What a bunch of crap. That is putting our trust in things, in mailers, instead of the Creator. And God's saying, no, no, I want you to trust in me. So I wonder, do you just have this utter dependency on Christ? Just this utter deep trust in the Creator. As a common person who is called to go out, do you think that you need a little bit more of a degree or one more class or one more skill or one more, you fill in the blank, to be capable? Or do you, can you trust in Christ? The second thing is, and you see this in verse 10, he says, whenever you enter a house, you are to stay there. Stay there. Because I think there's some of us who... Um, you kind of walk into the house thinking, oh, these are going to be a lot of fun people. And then you walk in going, oh, where, where do I sleep? It doesn't have quite the same amenities. It doesn't have the same comfort. It doesn't have... He's saying, listen, no, 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 no. Stay there. Stay in that house for as long as you are welcome. Don't look for the bigger, better thing. Don't look out and say, oh, that house has a hot tub. He said, no, 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 no. Stay right where you are at. Because I believe that true Christianity, world-changing Christianity, is not meant to be comfortable. In our Western world, if it's comfortable, if it's cool, if it's relaxing, that's, that's where I want to be. But Jesus says, oh no. Pick up your cross. Stay there. Count the cost of following me. Stay there. The, the amount of verses about suffering that Paul talked about Suffering for the sake of the gospel? Well, what do you do with that if you're a health wealth guy? You know, was Paul out of God's plan? He said, no, stay there. Stay. But then he he does this this strange thing where he says, uh, when you go into a house and you're you're not welcome there and they don't want to listen to you, leave. Leave. Walk out and shake off the dust off your sandals. Shake and this this is the way that it's put here in the ESV is. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, there's a whole, whole nother sermon in that, and I promise to stick to 72. But there's this whole idea that, you know, we, do we start thinking that when we go in with the gospel, is it kind of this mean, gruff kind of, you don't take my gospel, knock off my dust, screw you, and I'm on my way, I'm going to the next house that will accept it. In that time, it was a testimony. 
hoping that the people would say, wow, this, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. Because it was customary for pious Jews who traveled abroad to carefully shake off the dust of the alien lands from their feet and their clothing. This act, this act that they did, just disassociated them from the pollution of those pagan nations, as well as the judgment that was to come. It was a merciful, almost a prophetic act designed to make the people think deeply about their spiritual condition. Today, there's times that even the church, the people of God, must warn the world of judgment. Where we must warn the world of judgment. And there's times where we even must almost disassociate ourselves from sinful society. And there's just that, that fine line that we've got to travel of what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. But for me, where the rubber really meets the road is, um, was in verse 12. And you've got to remember the context is that these 12 disciples were going out to their countrymen. God's chosen people, Israel. The people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's beloved people. And they're sent out to, to reach these people. And here, what does verse 12 say? Verse 12 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Not a word that we like to hear in Christian circles. I'm sure that many of these people were Great synagogue attenders. They, they sent their kids to all the appropriate Jewish ministries and sporting clubs. They, they were great kosher eaters. They read and memorized the Torah. But something was missing. Something was missing. They had missed the Messiah in all of it. And probably the greatest thing for gospel preachers, for gospel proclaimers, for people like you and me, is that we need to be calling people and calling ourselves to repentance, to a new heart and to a new way of living. The word in there, the Greek word, can you throw it up for me, Ed? You got it? You got it off the top of your head? You got that one? It's, this is your Greek word that I'm going to be training you. This, this word, metanoeo, is this is this word of going in one direction and turning and going another word, another way. In, in changing everything of how you see and view. I used to be going this way, used to be thinking this way, used to be living this way, and now I am doing a literal 180 and a complete change of attitude, a complete change in thought, a complete change in my worldview. It's different. It's different how I look at what sin used to be 
Now I see sin in this way. What used to be righteous, now, now I see this is righteousness. This is the righteousness of God. This is what it means to be holy. Not that. And so they were preaching this message of repentance to God's chosen people. And we're on the other side of the cross as God's chosen people. And this is a message for wayward Christians. Martin Luther um, was never a man who had a... He basically told you the way it was. He didn't hold anything back. And when Martin Luther talked about the gospel, this is one of the things he said when he was in his, uh, wrote his commentary on the book of Galatians. He said, here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me. To wit, he has suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. And then here's, here's put this one up. This is how he, Luther ended it. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Beat it into their heads. So that's my job. Beat it into our heads of the power of the gospel to change lives. That we need to be people who are repenting. But I think a lot of us just don't think that there's a need for repentance. Again, D.A. Carson, in his book called The Basics, of, Basics for Believers, said this. Ready, Ed? I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies. Share self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want Ecstasy. Next slide, Ed. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. That'd be you. But I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved. Amen, parents? Yeah. I would not um, well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Youch. I'd just like $3 worth. 
Not the full thing. I'd like to just, can I just have this much? And we as Christ followers, his church, need to hear the words of repentance just as the children of Israel did some 2,000 years ago. Again, Martin Luther, this Roman Catholic priest who famously or infamously started the Protestant Reformation, nailed his 95 theses on the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he said this in his number one, his first theses said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent. He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So, Missio Dei Church, friends, we're called to be those who live a life of entire repentance. Repenting for becoming way too familiar and comfortable with the Jesus that we've lost our intimacy. We need to repent for trusting in created things instead of the Creator. We need to repent for abandoning our call to be salt and light in our homes, our workplaces, on the national level. In the world. We need to repent for creating a throne of our own where we can rule supremely and where we are above the throne. We need to repent for just wanting three dollars worth of the gospel. So that's why we come to the communion table. It's here where we, the body of Christ, can again see and remember the depth of our sin. Where we can see our rebellion against God. Where we can see in the broken body and the shed blood, the depth and the beauty and the wonder and the love of the cross. Where we are reminded of the perfect price that was paid through the blood of Christ so that we can now have peace with God. So we're going to celebrate communion. And it's through this celebration that uh, we remember the price that was paid for us. Where we remember the tremendous amount of love that God poured out for us. And it's through the breaking of His body, His perfect body, where He in all humility came and gave up His throne, which is above every other throne, and broke it for our sin. And it was through the shedding of His blood where we can remember that the price that He paid, His innocent blood, now gives us access to the Father. It gives us right standing before God. But according to 1 Corinthians, 
we don't join in this meal too quickly. It says, uh, make sure that you don't eat it in an unworthy manner. It sounds like to me, Paul saying, hey, some of you need to repent. Some of you have some, some junk that you need to clear before you eat this meal, remembering that this is not a cheap price that was paid. Some of you need to turn on your cell phones, head outside for a little bit and make some phone calls. And you have permission. Some of you need to look across this room and say, my sin is not against God as much as it is against my brother or sister. Which in reality it is against God. Some of you will need to pray with someone. There'll be some people in the back. If you just want to just say, can you pray for me? There'll be some people available in the back. But this meal is open to anybody who says, Jesus is Lord. And there's a tremendous amount of peace knowing that my sins are forgiven. So come. All things are ready.